to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Natalia. And I'm Veronica. And we're back. (laughs) We're reviving the podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus because life, you know how it is. Especially these days. Yes. Uh, So we're excited to be back, though, to talk about the film Promising Young Woman, written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who um, you might recognize as the showrunner of Killing Eve, which we've also talked about on the podcast. I guess we should start off with just like a brief plot summary. Do you want to take it away? Yeah, and I did want to say before we get into it, obviously the usual spoiler alert, we are going to talk in depth about the plot. And also just a content warning, like, this movie is about sexual assault, and we're going to be talking about the rape revenge genre. So if that's not something that you want to hear, check out another episode. Okay, so Promising Young Woman stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, Cassandra. She is kind of, people perceive her to be drifting, like working at a coffee shop, dropped out of med school. And basically she goes out at night and pretends to be very, very drunk and men always without fail come up to her and offer to take her home and end up trying to have sex with her. And then she turns into a very scary, very sober person who makes them rethink their actions. Um, And we find out as the movie goes along that she is actually just like deeply affected by the death of her friend Nina, who was raped in college when they were in med school together. And that's kind of what's setting her on this path to revenge. I feel like this film doesn't take itself too seriously, although it is dealing with like a very heavy topic. I don't know, am I completely off base in saying that there's like a bit of a comical element to this film? No, I think there is. There are moments when I was watching it and would laugh and be like, oh, she's such an asshole. Or just, yeah, there would be like little moments. And I think it is because it's such a heavy topic that maybe you need that to to be able to get through it. I think that the opening scene kind of sets it up pretty well. The opening scene is just like this montage of kind of chubby dudes like from the bottom of their rib cage to like midway up their thighs just like a sea of belted khaki pants with like shirts tucked in i forgot about that yes and the song it's like this montage of basically like white men in khaki dicks and the song playing in the background is charlie xcx it's her song boys And then it just kind of, like, from there it pans out, and it's, like, these three kind of, like, douchey guys, like, businessy dudes at a bar just talking. And then they see Cassie, and, like, the the plot kind of picks up from there. But I feel like that opening scene just kind of, it kind of, like, sets you up for what to expect from this movie, where it's, like, okay, we'll be dealing with some really heavy topics, but there's also, it's, like, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit more about that opening scene because it is a great moment when the three guys are like chatting like drinking their beers laughing and then the moment that they see Cassie you know sitting there like her head like just bobbing around because she's so blackout drunk the music turns to this very like predatory music and that is very telling there is a predator prey theme going on throughout the movie yeah. And the other thing I thought was great was the first dude that we meet that she's um, exacting her revenge on 
is Adam Brody. Um, and the casting in this movie is just chef's kiss perfect. Like, because they're, like, these quintessential guys, like, Bo Burnham, Christopher Mintz-Plass, who, like, obviously he's done a lot of other things and he's an accomplished actor and musician, but it's McLovin. Like, it doesn't get more harmless than that. Um, and... They're just these dudes who just seem like a good, sweet guy. And without fail, they all end up being trash. Yeah, I think it really sets up like that tension that so many people feel around this topic of like sexual assaults and rape. It's just this idea that a lot of the times people look at the men who are accused of this. Was it the Stanford athlete? It was Stanford, right? The guy that... I can't remember the university, but I know who you mean. Yeah, Yeah, when they were like, oh, this will, like, ruin this young man's life. And that's very Mm -hmm. much, like, a theme and a point of tension within this movie as well, where you see all of these guys who've been casted as, like, these harmless, lovable, like, comedy characters in the past. And on some level, like, when you see them, you're like, even if they're kind of joking, especially in that opening scene when Cassie is, you know, like, she's on a bench by herself, like, she's wearing a skirt and, like, her legs are a little bit apart, just, like, very clearly, like, we think sloppily, like, about to blackout drunk. They're kind of joking, but you're like, oh, like, the guy who says that he just wants to go and check on her and make sure she's okay, like, he'll definitely take her home, right? Like, mm-hmm. of course, like, that guy's gonna look after her. And sure enough, he, like, takes her back to his place instead and she doesn't have her phone and isn't really able to refuse but it is very much this idea where like these men are just given the benefit of the doubt and even up until the very last minute you're like is he really gonna do that like I don't know and Adam Brody also was in another film we talked about um Jennifer's Body Mm -hmm. and it is interesting how throughout his his career like you know, starting out in the OC and being this, like, nerdy, like, manic pixie dream boy. Um, And then he's, like, been cast in a lot of these roles where, like, Jennifer's body, where he uses that as, like, a veneer and, like, he's actually kind of evil. So, I don't know. It just was an interesting choice that I really enjoyed. And, yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, like, I'm a nice guy. And this, like, trying to convince themselves that they're a good guy and they wouldn't do this, but, like, you just did. (laughs) Yes, that I think is one of the most interesting, like recurring statements that happens in this movie Mm -hmm. is we see like several instances of Cassie, you know, pretending she's blackout drunk, some guy like brings her back to their place. And then they're like, trying to finger her and she's like, obviously blacked out or like, trying to like have sex with her and she keeps like passing out and they're like they keep trying anyway and then she snaps too she's completely sober and says what are you doing Mm -hmm. and their first defense is always like oh my god what the fuck is wrong with you Mm -hmm. or it's like i'm a good guy like what like why would you think that i'm not a good guy and it's like well everything that you've just done up until this point has indicated that you're not a good guy but it's like this weird like defensive reflex it's like this gaslighting thing yeah, she terrifies them. And I want to get into like the kind of history of horror films that this is responding to. But um, I do want to go off of what you were saying. There's this scene toward the beginning, like after she leaves um, Adam Brody's character's house the next morning, and she's getting catcalled by these guys at a construction site, like very common scene, right? And they're like, oh, walk of shame. And she just stands there and stares at them. And they're shouting all these obscenities at her, but her standing there and staring at them terrifies them. And all of a sudden, they're mad at her 
for creeping them out. <laughs> yeah. And it really reminded me of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night when she's um walking, like, across the street from Arasha's dad and stopping every time he stops and he really scares her. And, yeah, there's just something that the men are responding to when the women are not reacting in the way that they expect. And it's, yeah, it's just, like, such a double standard, right? Like, when she pretends to be drunk and then she's sober, they're mad at her. But it's like, well, why wouldn't she be mad when you pretend to be nice and you're trash? And it's also so interesting because I feel like what she does, her actions are, are like, lesser on the scale than what these mm-hmm. guys are doing. Like, they're physically assaulting her and she's just saying, what are you doing? And yeah, like, mm-hmm. the setup into the scene is kind of, like, a little bit dishonest. But in terms of actual actions, like, she hasn't actually done anything And it's the same with the construction workers where she's actually just standing there and like standing her ground and looking at them. And they're the ones who are harassing her. And then they're also the ones who get like really upset. We'll definitely get back to like what we think she's doing versus what she's actually doing. Um, (laughs) But one more thing on that topic I wanted to say is when she um, later in the movie, when she meets up with another guy who was a friend of Adam Brody's character and he's like, oh, you're that girl. Like you're the one who scared the shit out of him or whatever and she tells him there's a lot more girls out there doing the same thing as me she just tries to scare him with that like you never know what girl that you take home drunk is doing the same thing I'm doing to kind of instill this fear in him and it's the fear that every woman has right and there's like a lot of discussion right now the not all men topic because of the woman who disappeared in England where it's like, yeah, sure, not all men are going to abduct you in the park at night, but it happens to enough women that we all have to be scared of that. A hundred percent of the time, when you're walking through a park at night, you have to be scared. And so she's trying to instill that same fear in him. Like, you never know what woman is, you know, tricking you. We should talk about the history of the genre. Okay, let's do it. So I was reading a bit of Carol J. Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. I think I've brought it up before, probably in our first episode, because she really traces like the history of the slasher film and horror film in general and how this genre plays with gender. Chapter three of her book is called Getting Even, and it's about this um, genre specifically. She basically talks about how the genre as we kind of know it emerges in the early 70s with the movie Last House on the Left, where a woman is raped and killed and her parents are exacting revenge on her behalf. And as we, like, move along through the decade, there starts to be a a shift into the woman in the movie taking revenge for herself. She talks about a movie called Lipstick in 1976, which kind of takes the genre further to talk about the futility of the legal system when it comes to rape cases. So, about the movies in this decade, she says, In the spate of rape-revenge films that follow in the late 70s and 80s, rape becomes a problem for women themselves to solve. In I Spit on Your Grave, The Parodic, Mother's Day, Act of Vengeance, Eyes of a Stranger, Miss 45, Ladies Club, she lists a bunch of movies, Women seek their own revenge, usually on their own behalf, but sometimes on behalf of a sister, literal or figurative, who has been murdered or disabled in an act of sexual violence. Definitely applies here with Cassie's revenge on behalf of Nina. Definitely. 
And she goes on to say, They share a set of premises that, while not entirely unprecedented, are conspicuously conditioned by changes in social attitudes of the two decades in question. That rape deserves full-scale revenge. That rape and revenge story constitutes sufficient drama for a feature film. And that having the victim survive to be her own avenger makes that drama even better and more directly political. And that we live... Wait, no. Makes that drama even better and more directly political that we live in a rape culture in which all males, husbands, boyfriends, lawyers, politicians are directly or indirectly complicit and that men are thus not just individually but corporately liable. And I think that's really interesting and really applies to this movie. Um, You know, Clover starts the chapter by talking about this movie, I Spit on Your Grave, which is very seemingly straightforward. Like, first half of the movie is dedicated to these four men raping this woman, and the second half is her getting her revenge. And that's kind of it. But as Clover says, like, as the genre evolves, there's this legal, political, social layer that comes into play where it's not just this man is bad and he deserves to be murdered or castrated or whatever violence is happening in the movie, but that there's a larger problem that needs to be addressed, which I think Promising Young Woman does a really good job of addressing. That's a really interesting way to frame it. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in the way that this film explored the genre was like in what you see and what voices are emphasized and what you don't see and like whose voices you don't hear. So in a lot of like rape revenge movies, you often see like there's like a horrifying like rape scene and Mm -hmm. like you have to bear witness to it and you usually end up identifying with the victim like I feel like a recent example of this that I saw was the girl with the dragon tattoo where there's like this pretty horrifying rape scene and like you don't necessarily see well you kind of see it but like you also see just a lot of just her face instead of like the actual violence and that makes you as a viewer like really respond to and like relate to what she's going through and I really liked Carmen Maria Machado's review of this film in the New Yorker she said rape revenge is a genre rife with moral complications and high stakes cinematic choices does one for instance depict the rape and risk the scene being titillating or exploitative or does one show very little and risk the revenge seem seeming hysterical or overblown Do you nudge audience members to identify with the rapist so that they experience complicity or with the victim so that they feel sympathy? As viewers, we have our own questions to ask. Do filmmakers owe us realistic portrayals of rape and its aftermath, or may we take pleasure in revenge fantasies in which real-life obstacles are cast aside? Mm -hmm. Yes, I really enjoyed that review as well, and it really... I feel like Carmen Maria Machado, who you guys already know we love, um, has a really deep understanding of the genre of all these things that Clover is talking about and, yeah, just frames it in a really interesting way. I liked what you said about what's shown and not shown in the point of view. Clover says something about that as well, and I think it's in relation to the movie The Accused, which, like, largely takes place more in the courtroom, but basically... Throughout this movie, as Clover describes it, we never see the scene of the rape until, even though the like the woman testifies about it, until a man, a witness, testifies. So she says, The rendition of the rape itself, during which the camera seems as interested in watching Ken, the witness's face, watching Sarah being raped, as it is in watching the rape itself. 
But the real giveaway is the fact that the rape itself can only be shown directly. The flashback can happen only when Ken takes the stand and narrates his eyewitness account. Sarah, the victim, testified to precisely the same events shortly before. But whereas her testimony remained her own version, his testimony becomes our version, the version. After a few sentences, his voiceover ceases and the rape unfolds before us as visible, omniscient history takes over. Seldom has a set of male eyes been more privileged. Without their witness, there would be no case. There would, in fact, as the defense attorney notes, be no rape. Like you were saying, like, in other films of this genre, the rape is shown. Maybe we see the victim's face, so we identify with the perpetrator, or maybe we see the perpetrator's face, so we identify with the victim. But Promising Young Woman does neither. We never see it. And I think part of that is that we never have the opportunity to glorify it, to in any way enjoy the spectacle. But she's been fighting this fight for years. And the only catalyst for like a legal resolution is when a video comes about. A video taken by one of the men in the room. I actually really like the way that the movie handles this because we see Cassie watching the video, but like we never actually see the video ourselves. Mm -hmm. And... I feel like this film, in a way, like, I don't think that you ever don't believe that it happened. Like, I don't think that you need to, like, see the rape or, like, have a man witnessing the rape to, like, believe that it happened. Like, that's not really the setup here. Mm -hmm. I feel like this film is really just this exploration of, like, the aftermath of it and what does justice and revenge look like. And there was a review in the New York Times by Lena Wilson, and she was writing about how the movie doesn't really give enough space for the characters to grow and heal after this traumatic event. And that in some ways it's like belittling women and like, what's a good way to phrase this? Basically it's like falling short as a film because it doesn't allow for moving past this event. But I actually don't know if that's like what the intent of this film is, especially in like an hour and a half to two hours in a film like I think it's it's pretty hard to really depict like the long form version of what that looks like like you see it more in a show like Big Little Lies where people are very much working through these issues like over several long episodes but I don't think that that's what this film set out to do so I'm not sure if like we should be looking at it that way like Cassie is kind of a flat character like she has been legitimately hollowed out by this thing that happened to her friend and she's basically like a shell of what she formerly was in the way that her friend was also a shell after this event and I really like this line in the movie where she talks about oh gosh what's the character's name that raped Nina Al's wedding reception so Al like after Nina is assaulted at this party Cassie says like and I didn't see Nina anymore like Nina wasn't Nina like it was your name, Al, that defined Nina because she was defined by this thing that happened to her. And I feel like the movie is very much kind of dealing in those terms rather than like, it's not really like, it's not really like a movie that it's about the journey of the recovery. It's like this movie that like highlights and illustrates the impacts of this. That was my takeaway at least. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that for Nina, there wasn't. Like, it was enough trauma in her life and enough people not believing her and not giving a shit about her experience that she couldn't see a past to get through it. And that could be many people's experience. Like, 
I don't know. You were reminding me of something that that Carmen Maria Machado said in her review. Um, I hope it's the same section I currently have pulled up. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the one about the, like, rupture? Um, Anyway, I'll just read the quote. She says, trauma is contagious, infectious, violent. It blurs, and more importantly, it ruptures. Watching Promising Young Woman, I recalled a phrase from a piece by Doreen St. Felix about the book Know My Name by Chanel Miller, whose sexual assault became a national story and who was referred to as Emily Doe in the media. St. Felix describes Miller's subsequent coping strategy as a bifurcating of the self. And so, yeah, she's like talking about how this trauma that happened to Nina infected Cassie as well. And there's this like, there's this double where Nina and Cassie are kind of two halves of the same person. Was that the one you were thinking of? I was actually thinking of the passage right before that, but this all fits together. Like, I think there's like definitely a point to be made for like the impact it had on these women's lives. But then if we back up a little bit and kind of re-examine what you'd said earlier about like this idea of legality and politics and like the courtroom scene after Nina was assaulted, like it's not, like these characters didn't take any steps to set this right. I think Cassie maybe had gone to the dean of the school, who was also a woman, and and she was like, we have to give these young men the benefit of the doubt. Like, we can't just go off of what Nina says. Like, we would be ruining these men's lives. And then there was also a lawsuit, which Nina lost, which is like a whole other coming to Jesus moment with that lawyer. But Mm -hmm. there's kind of this sense of like, this the profound effort that it takes to get like some kind of revenge or justice in this system and like maybe what cassie's doing isn't so insane also what carmen marie machado said about this then there's the movie's variation on the proxy avenger there are broadly speaking two kinds of rape revenge films as sarah projansky notes in her book watching rape There are those in which the women face rape, recognize that the law will neither protect nor avenge them, and then take the law into their own hands. And there are those in which a grieving boyfriend or husband or parent avenge the violation of a wronged woman who is essentially a non-character. And then there's kind of this entire argument that talks about how the, the latter ones where a man is avenging, it's like a particularly violent version of masculinity. And those are probably mainly movies written by men for men in which like a good male character goes through all these crazy lengths like and does all these bad things to avenge a woman but that's not what we're talking about here we're kind of talking about the first one and i don't know like you never really side with her like (laughs) you're never like yeah cassie is like doing the right thing by doing this like she's very much operating in a gray area but she's also very much like just traumatized and like defined by this one horrifying event um and it it doesn't seem so insane like it seems insane to the men in the movie but like as a viewer it doesn't seem so insane that like the lengths she goes to are too much to try to like set the balance right for this like sexual assault that her friend experienced yeah which is a passive way of saying it, and I want to rephrase. Like, she okay. was raped. There was, like, an active. Yeah. It wasn't like she, she was just, like, passively there, and, like, it happened he, upon her. That's true. He raped her. There are two different paths I want to go here. I don't know which one to go first. Just pick one. Okay, I'll pick one first, which is the gray area of um, what Cassie's doing. Okay, so on the one hand, there is the history of violent revenge in these movies. 
And Clover talks about this. And she talks about a movie called Miss 45 about this woman who was assaulted and then she just kind of starts killing different men around New York City for being horrible. Um, (laughs) So Clover says, It goes without saying that the notion of women going around New York putting bullets through male chauvinists has everything to do with fantasy and little to do with reality. Just what the male spectator's stake is in that fantasy is not clear. But it must surely be the case that there is some ethical relief in the idea that if women would just toughen up and take karate or buy a gun, the issue of male and female violence would evaporate. It is a way of shifting responsibility from the perpetrator to the victim. If a woman fails to get tough, fails to buy a gun, to take karate, she is, in an updated sense of the cliché, asking for it. Moreover, if women are as capable as men of acts of humiliating violence, men are off the guilt hook that modern feminism has put them on. And then she goes on to say, female self-sufficiency, both physical and mental, is the hallmark of the rape-revenge genre. And I think this is really interesting because the movie at first lets you think that maybe uh, Cassie is taking violent revenge. Like, after the opening scene with Adam Brody's character, who I'll never remember the name of, and (laughs) we'll just refer to him as that, um, she's, like, eating a hot dog and, like, spilling ketchup on herself so you get the idea like something bloody happened and then when she meets up with Allison Brie which we'll talk more about in a minute she kind of like gets her drunk and like leaves this guy with her and you think like oh is she setting her up to also be raped and like you start getting concerned about her methods and then you realize later in the film that none of her revenge has been physical none of it has been violent it's been about putting people in the same shoes that Nina was in, or that Cassie is in, uh, in putting them in the situation of, like, seeing how unjust the system is, or feeling the fear that women feel. And, and that's, that's a more long-lasting revenge, I think, because just killing the perpetrator doesn't fix the social problem. It doesn't fix the legal problem. And so she's trying to do something different that is not about violence, but is about, yeah, just, like, addressing all these, like, different parties that are responsible for what happened. And that was the other thing I wanted to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, I I did think that that was interesting because, like, for all the reasons that you said, and then also if we think about the ending, like, she didn't really in the end hurt anybody besides herself and it is sad Mm -hmm. that like one of the things one of my takeaways is she had to commit her entire life like every fiber of her being essentially to just get what she considered to be some kind of revenge or justice for like what happened to her best friend and like it's it's kind of depressing, but also not unreasonable that like, that's actually maybe what that would look like in the real world. Sometimes like when the legal system fails you and like when the police investigators fail you and when your support network fails you and when your friends fail you, like, yeah, to, to kind of get back at the people who did this terrible wrong, it would take a lot. Like it would really, truly take a lot. And that's kind of like, it's really sad actually that that's what it took. But also it is really interesting that she never stooped to that same level. I mean, there's definitely an argument that toward the end of the movie with Al, like she was trying to kill him and potentially. Or I think she was, um, like you mentioned, girl with the dragon tattoo. And I feel like Mm -hmm. 
that was the same scene where like she tattoos rape on the guy or whatever like Mm -hmm. she was trying to do something similar like brand him in some way which is violent you're right I think I might be getting mixed up because for some reason I thought she was trying to smother him with a pillow but now that I'm like thinking back on it it was definitely him that did that to her so yep that was a thousand percent yeah but that was a turning point in which like she was actually inflicting bodily harm on somebody but yeah it wasn't she wasn't gonna kill him or like maim him or anything well maim can be argued but like definitely deservedly so right yeah and I mean at that point in the movie she's also like so disappointed right because she has been allowing herself little by little like a little bit of vulnerability with Ryan Bo Burnham's character and you know this is coming from the second she meets him he seems so nice so sweet so funny he must disappoint her at some point and it's when she watches the video and she hears his voice and he was there all along, and he's acting like he had no part in it. I can't remember why I got on that tangent. <laughs> oh, that that's, like, then when she heads to the cabin for the bachelor party, like, she's so broken down by that disappointment at that point that I think she changes her methods from what she was doing before to, like, an actual violent revenge. Yep. Not that that means that it's fine to cut the word rapist into someone or the woman's name or whatever she was going to do. But yeah, the other thing that I, uh, you mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk more about was all the different people who are responsible. Mm. That of course, of course the rapist was responsible, but she goes through this list of all the people who could have helped and didn't. And so she starts with, what was Alison Bree's character? Madison, who was their friend in college when this happened, or in med school, and when she heard Nina's story of what happened, she said that she was crying wolf, you know, and she brings Mm -hmm. up this idea of women blaming women, of, you know, she shouldn't have worn that, or she shouldn't have gotten that drunk around all these dudes, or, you know, like, this, um narrative that is so prevalent about women asking for it and then Cassie does that really dubious um kind of like act of putting her in the same situation Mm -hmm. letting her get super drunk and wake up in a hotel with a guy and even though we find out it didn't happen she lets her think it did for a long time and she finally understands right like, that there is no asking for it. That it's the person who did this to you who is responsible. Mm-hmm. And then there's, like, you mentioned the responsibility of the institution. Of the dean of the college, who Nina reported this incident to, and um, she tells Cassie, we get one to two accusations a week. As if that is a reason to dismiss it and not a reason to address the problem of rape and sexual assault on her campus. And she says these same things. She's like, oh, we've all made bad bad choices where we made ourselves vulnerable. And there's a responsibility of the legal system, that lawyer that you mentioned, who is, you know, haunted by all these young men he defended, by all the dirt that he got on the women to put the blame on them. And there's the responsibility of the bystanders, of Ryan, of all the dudes whose voices are heard in that video who watched this happen and did nothing. And, yeah, I thought that that was kind of at the heart of the movie, and what made this movie so interesting to me was that it's not cut and dry like I spit on your grave. It's not, you did violence to me, I do violence to you. There's a huge system in place that allows this to happen. 
And it is also, I mean, I feel like that's so much of what Kathy's doing is like trying to dismantle this and trying to like, as maybe ineffectual in the grand scheme as it is, like trying to one by one teach people like what this is like and what it is that they're actually doing to like re-examine instead of looking at their actions like in this kind of situational context like oh it's within the situation of a lot of people being drunk at a bar all making bad decisions like it's forcing them to re-examine their actions kind of in this harsh light of day mm-hmm. yeah do we want to talk about more about the ending i think so so Cassie goes to this cabin where Al and all his buddies are having a bachelor party for him. And I think it's really interesting who committed the the rape in this movie. Because in a lot of these 70s, 80s rape revenge movies, it's some weird backwoods country bumpkins. And there's this, Clover talks about this like city country divide that's happening but here it's doctors they are privileged dudes there's no oh they don't know any better because they're country country bumpkins which is insulting in its own way and it's not some stranger it's people that they know but yeah she dresses up as a stripper walks up to this amazing cover of toxic playing in the background um and when she confronts him uh I wrote down this line he said because I was so disgusted by it uh, when he says, I was affected by it too. It's every guy's nightmare to get accused like that. Like, it's not every woman's nightmare to get raped. Which I think is her response. You're right. I think it is. She's like, well, what do you think every woman's worst nightmare is? Right. And he doesn't want his life to get ruined, but he's already ruined Nina's life to the point where she killed herself. I mean, they never say it in the movie, but we assume that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And something that I caught myself doing in this final scene when he tries to smother her, when he realizes who she is and the potential impact of letting her walk out of here alive, is that I start thinking like, oh, why didn't she bring a weapon? Or why didn't she tell anyone what she was? And I was doing the same thing that she's indicting people for doing. I was like putting it on her to bring a weapon, putting it on her to defend herself when it's on him to just not murder her. That seems pretty easy. I want to get back to the post-murder fallout, but one thing that I kind of found myself doing after watching the movie is Carmen Maria Machado, of course, puts it so much more eloquently than I ever could. So I'm going to read you an excerpt here from her review. And this is a, a quote. She says, Revenge is the place... The fracturing mind goes when it is trying to stay whole, Emma Copley Eisenberg has written. That is the paradox of it, because revenge often means doing, even justified and righteous things, from which it is very unlikely you will return whole. And isn't that what we know to be true? Rape revenge, not as dark comedy or edgy thriller or triumphant drama, but as self-immolation, submission to the impossibility of wholeness without destruction, addressed and unaddressed sexual violence as an annihilating force. It's not optimistic or cathartic or satisfying. It's a way to ask a question. How many women, one, two, fifty, ten thousand more, will be sacrificed to the ravenous maw of men's promise? And that's kind of what I got from that final scene. Like, I feel like the turning point of the disappointment in realizing who Ryan is, like, there's no other way for her to go from here. Like, Cassie had been kind of trying to claw her life back together, and then 
it was like that was just the crux of it and then like she was already so destroyed by what Nina went through that it was like there was basically nothing left like this was sort of almost written in stone at this point god Carmen Maria Machado is such an amazing writer I know (laughs) yeah I almost want to end on that quote that's so great but yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so she she actually did prepare for the eventuality of getting murdered and she kind of set everything up for law enforcement to step in right she sent the video to the lawyer and she told him where she was gonna be and sets everything up so that her body is found and uh, we end on the wedding Alice getting married and you know the police shows up and everyone gets arrested basically how did you feel about that ending? Because I feel like Carmen Maria Machado's thoughts on it were really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was bummed out, but I also didn't... I don't know. There was, like, a part of me that... I sort of almost justified it, I guess, because I was upset by saying, like, well, Cassie was never gonna heal as a person anyway, and I don't like that that's what my reaction was. Like, my way of just trying not to be super upset over the ending was like, oh, well, maybe it's better that it happened this way because, like, clearly she was so devastated and defined by Nina's rape that, like, she was never going to be okay anyway. And I think that that's where some of the other criticism of this film is coming from, where, like, the inevitability of her death is kind of, like, not leaving space for recovery and healing, which maybe isn't something that we need to be seeing all the time. Like, just because so much of her life and Nina's lives were defined by this rape doesn't mean that it has to continue that way until the end. So I sort of understand that, but the ending actually did catch me by surprise a little bit because it wasn't like, it wasn't really the direction the rest of the movie was headed in retrospect. Like it makes sense, but for the most of the duration of the movie, like nobody was being super violent. No one was being like physically injured. It was more of like this mind game slash, like trying to correct the system thing than like a murder thing. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting how this movie confronts us with our own shitty reactions. Right. Yes. <laughs> I, I definitely like, yeah, I felt that way too at points as I was saying earlier when like blaming her for not bringing a gun or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and it is sur- a surprising ending. Like you keep expecting her to be alive somehow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Carmen Maria Machado says, The victorious arrival of law enforcement is perhaps the one place that the film truly falters, with its suggestion that the police and the legal system are likely mechanisms for a rape victim to find real justice. And I I was struggling with that too as I was watching mm-hmm. it. Like, I, I wrote down in my notes, it's a little idealistic that there would be consequences like this. And then I wrote, it's okay to imagine a better world. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, both are true, right? Like, it is probably idealistic to think that that these guys would face consequences. Like, they probably are going to get some really good lawyers and they're going to get out anyway. But, I mean, this is a film, and while it seems really based in reality, yeah, sure, we can imagine that there is a world where they do face the consequences. Yeah. I guess before we wrap up, there were, like, a couple other pieces that I just wanted to chat with you about. Mm -hmm. The big one was the main character's name, Cassandra. Mm. I was just kind of thinking through this a little bit. I shall read you a little bit from the Encyclopedia Britannica. But 
Cassandra in Greek mythology is the daughter of Priam, the last king of Troy, and his wife, Hecuba. And she, according to Agamemnon, Cassandra was loved by the god Apollo, who promised her the power of prophecy if she would comply with his desires. Cassandra accepted the proposal, received the gift, and then refused the god her favors. Apollo revenged himself by ordaining that her prophecies should never be believed. She accurately predicted such events as the fall of Troy and the death of Agamemnon, but her warnings went unheeded. So how do we feel about that reading of like a Cassandra character to Cassie? Yeah, that's super interesting. I think that um, she's not the first um, rape revenge movie character to be named after a Greek goddess. That's exactly what's happening, right? Nobody believes her or nobody, even though they do believe her, they don't believe that they have a responsibility in it. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's definitely apt. And I think that, didn't Carmen Maria Machado say something about this? One of her tar- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Nope, go for it. (laughs) Even Midsommar, one of my favorite recent revenge movies with a plot built atop the fault lines of gender, couldn't resist having a single good guy in the middle of its cornucopia of comeuppance, a preemptive strike perhaps against those who would accuse it of making a sweep- sweeping statements about men as a category. But there is no such coddling and promising young woman, and the slack of hedging feels both furious and maddeningly correct. There's a reason Cassie is called a crazy fucking bitch, a psycho, by the men of the film. One of her targets, at a moment of extreme vulnerability, can't help himself, You're insane, he tells her. She replies with a laugh, You know what? I honestly don't think I am. And I think she's right. She has the clarity and prophecy of her priestess namesake. It's not her fault that no one is listening. Mm. And it does also, I guess, tie into some of the imagery created around her, right? Of a goddess or a Virgin Mary kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. And there's also a bit of like the avenging angel imagery as well or well not exactly because like there's this one where she's in front of like a painting of a saint and just the halo is perfectly around her head yes which is interesting because the way that she's portrayed in the film is very much like i do not know where they found these sweaters i was like that sweater (laughs) is from when i was in elementary school and people were wearing like puffy tufted like crazy colored sweaters that are like very fuzzy looking no idea where these came from but I was like that's impressive in and of itself she's always wearing like these bright pastel colors and things like that and it definitely gives like the sense of that she's like a very sweet kind-hearted eight-year-old girl but then Mm -hmm. in all of her actions she's just like (laughs) really blunt and to the point and sort of like condescending I'm thinking of uh when Ryan first comes into the coffee shop and meets her and she's just like, wow. And she actually spits in his coffee. It's such a contrast with like her pastel nails. And it's pretty interesting. Totally. Yeah. That there's like this play on femininity, right? On this ideal that men want of women as like innocent. And then her, like her voice, like the register of her voice is super low. Mm -hmm. She never smiles just for the sake of smiling. So she's like embracing and rejecting ideas of femininity femininity at the same time, which I thought was super fascinating. It's definitely this interesting contrast all in one person. It's like, even as a somewhat flat character, you know, I don't really feel like she grows or develops throughout the movie. Like she's really just pegged as being like defined by this one event and mm-hmm. like that's sort of the thing that drives her I mean she never like leaves her job at the coffee shop she never like moves out of her parents house like this is her one thing and it seems almost like there's an escape from it like she kind of starts like clawing her way back toward 
having a full life and then that sort of falls apart. Yeah, it is like painful for the people in her life, right? For her parents to see her stuck in this thing. And I think it goes to the the title of the film, A Promising Young Woman. Um, and I, is it Ryan? I wrote down the quote, but I didn't write, write down who says to her, you would have been a great doctor. And yeah, there's this idea that if you don't follow this career path or if you don't do this thing, like you've wasted your life, but there are reasons behind that. There is a reason why she dropped out of med school. And and yeah, I mean, back to that critique that you were sharing earlier about there is a road to recovery and there is a, a road to building like your life back. And maybe other films touch on this really well. But yeah, I think that is it is that interesting idea of promising young woman of what she could have been uh, and what she didn't get to be while all these dudes did get to become doctors. Yeah. There is kind of In a a lot of the reviews that I was looking at, there was this interesting idea that Nina and Cassie were sort of, like, conflated and, like, sort of, well, not conflated, but, like, blended and became the same character in a lot of ways, which is, like, definitely referenced with, like, they have the heart-shaped necklaces where they each have one half of the heart and it can only be a full heart when you place the pieces together that has, like, the other person's name on them. And I do think that there is some validity in that and that like both of their lives were forever changed and sort of defined by this rape. But I also, I don't know how much I agree that they're sort of an interchangeable character. Like one of the critics at one point wrote that, and I can't remember which one, that the dialogue that Cassie has with Allison when they're sitting together, like sharing that meal and drinking wine was written so that it could be either talking about Cassie or Nina Um, It was like this idea that Nina was fully formed from day one and just like wholly herself, no matter what other people thought. And then the minute that she was raped, like she was defined by that instead. And it just like she like lost her Nina-ness. And I guess that there's also an argument that that could be said of Cassie as well, although we never really see Cassie beforehand. So we like never really and nobody ever really talks about her. So we don't. I'm just not really sure if I fully agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of one more thing that I didn't want to forget to mention, which is the male group dynamic and the yes. fact that it's um, a bunch of guys in the room when they're raping Nina. And I'm trying to find the quote from Clover. So in this quote, she's talking about the movie I Spit on Your Grave. And she talks about this conversation that the four men who raped the main character are having. And she says, The nighttime fishing conversation um, just quoted introduces two features of what the film defines as masculinity that will underwrite the remainder of the story. Categorical claims about male and female nature and a group dynamic that drives men to deeds of which they might not be singly capable. And then she's like comparing basically the rape or the movie that she's talking about compares it to like a sporting event where like the other guys are going, go, go, go. And she says, for I spit on your grave, at least gang rape has first and foremost to do with male sport and male pecking order and only secondarily to do with sex. The implication being that team sport and gang rape are displaced versions of one another, male sorting devices both and both driven by male spectatorship. And there is, yeah, this is underlying the film as well, that there were multiple guys there and you can hear them in the video like egging each other on and there is this interesting kind of performativity where the rape might not even be about 
sexual pleasure for him, but just about showing where he is in the hierarchy. I definitely think that's true. And it's also, I mean, even in that final scene where Al kills Cassie, like, he's the bachelor, so he's, like, the star of the show that night, and she, like, roofies the rest of them, and then, you know, he takes her upstairs, as he should, because he's, like, the star of the show, and there is definitely that same dynamic where they're, like, cheering and, like, rooting him on and, like, belittling her a little bit, and I could definitely see that. And the first scene, too, of the movie where you have the three guys at the bar, you know, they're the two that are, like, challenging each other to, like, basically, like, take her home. Mm -hmm. And then there's the one guy who's like, I'm going to make sure she gets home safe. Like, she doesn't seem like she's okay. And then he's the one that actually takes her home in this, like, Mm -hmm. super underhanded, like, unsettling shift. So I think that that, I think it applies. I guess we've gone full circle there. Yeah. (laughs) Back to the beginning of the movie, so. What else have you been enjoying? What would you like to recommend? I actually just finished watching The Crown, all four seasons. I had only seen the first two seasons, and then when they switched actors and actresses, I was like, "Mm, I don't know about this. I want Claire Foy back, but finished that, and then... And Matt Smith. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But, like, the day before I finished that was the Meghan and Harry interview on Oprah, Mm. so I feel like I've been just kind of watching all of that pretty closely and doing a little bit of digging on Princess Diana and just, you know, I think that was, that was before I was born, I think, or I was quite young when she died. I can't Yeah, I think remember. she died when we were young. Okay. I think it was the early nineties. Then I might remember my mom watching it on TV and being really upset. Um, unless I'm like misplacing my memories somehow, which is totally possible. But yeah, I feel like I've been following that a little bit, thinking about rewatching some more Oprah to learn interviewing skills. <laughs> Because uh, I forgot she's really good at that. Um, I haven't seen the interview yet. Just like read excerpts from it and stuff. But same. Yeah, it's um, the royal family is a crazy mess. Definitely seems that way. Although, like, who could really say? Because we only see exactly what they want us to see for the most part. So. Mm, yeah. What did you think of the crown? Did you like it? I thought it was good. I thought it was super interesting because one of the last episodes of the fourth season is like Queen Elizabeth being really against apartheid in South Africa and trying Mm. to drive her government to actually like impose sanctions on South Africa so that they were less racist and terrible toward black people and could like, like through economic sanctions, then the idea would be that the country would like you know, do with apartheid and actually have equal citizenship for people of different races, which is like such a crazy idea. But then, of course, with this Megan and Harry interview, that was like kind of directly in conflict with that. And even yeah. though everyone is like, oh, it wasn't Queen Elizabeth and it was no members of the royal family that were expressing concerns over Archie's skin color, it's like, I don't know. I don't know enough about the royal family and the dynamics there and like who does or says what and how it's attributed, but. I guess also within that same season when Queen Elizabeth was like, I want us to impose economic sanctions and like boo Margaret Thatcher for being a racist, like that whole fallout she then attributes to somebody else on her staff that she throws under the bus Mm -hmm. and he takes it because he's like loyal to the crown. But that's kind of what it was just like so fresh to when that interview happened, like those two episodes that I was like, is that what's happening here? Like, yeah. I don't know how to read this because I don't have enough information. So I feel like I'm just very skeptical of the whole thing. 
yeah, I guess we never will have enough information, but it's not hard to imagine that they would have that conversation about the color of Archie's skin because, I mean, we've seen so much of them, like, dictating who you can and can't marry, like, for the sake of the image of the crown, so, I mean, I guess we can't ever know for sure, but there's also no reason to disbelieve Megan, right? Like, she's just telling us her experience. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely not inclined to disbelieve her, but when she says, like, people expressed concern, like, mm-hmm. I guess in my mind, the way that I interpret that just off the bat is, like, probably the queen <laughs> or, like, <laughs> I don't know, Prince Charles or something. But, of course, there's no way of knowing, like, and, of course, there's no way of knowing what the actual power dynamics are. And, like, I don't know, it's just, like, a big question mark. And I'm still toying with whether or not I want to watch the full Oprah interview because I'm just, like... This seems like a lot to take on. This is like some conspiracy theory level stuff that I don't know if I want to like dedicate this much of my life to trying to piece this apart. That's totally fair. Prince Charles in in The Crown is just straight garbage. Oh, the worst. And I'm like, then of course I'm also doing research on the side. Like, how true is this? Like, I have no sense. I did not ever study this in history. Like, is he actual garbage? Like, do I hate him based off of this one TV show? I don't know. I feel like I kind of do, but yeah. (laughs) It's not fair, but like that's what happened. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I feel like the, the the Oprah interview comes at a time where it's like informed by framing Britney Spears, right? About by this Mm. idea that the press is so, it's not just the crown, it's the press that is so brutal against these women. And, you know, you see the side by side like, uh, headlines about Kate Middleton versus Meghan Markle and, like, oh, Kate is hugging her belly and it's cute. And when it's Meghan Markle doing it, the headline is, what is she protecting her baby from? And it's, like, this way that Mm. the press wears down women's mental health that we're so open to hearing now, even though they've been telling us all along because of framing Britney Spears. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I do think that the media has shifted a bit. Like I think that just in society more broadly, people are more aware of like mental health issues and like having compassion toward that. But I don't know, like this is something that came up a little bit when I was at Columbia, the press actually functions very differently in the UK. And you see that throughout Mm -hmm. the crown as well. Like you are a little bit muzzled and fettered in what you can and cannot say about the crown. And like, the crown can and cannot dictate to an extent from what I understand, like what is published and run in the newspapers. So the freedom of the press isn't the same as in the United States where you can just, I mean, of course there are like libel laws and things like that that we don't need to get into, but like it is more difficult to criticize the crown there. So I think that that's also part of what you see in the crown and also part of what you see in the handling of Meghan Markle. Like I'm actually not sure if, did any papers in the United States run things like that? I don't know if the United States is quite as fascinated with the monarchy as as people in the UK are, but... Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I feel like all of those examples that I saw were from UK tabloids. And, like, I, I mean, there has been an interest in the US because of Meghan Markle. And, like, she was an actress here before she became a royal, or I guess she's not a royal because they gave it up. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, the, it, it totally is a different treatment because, like... We don't care about a monarchy here. Right. And also, newsrooms in the United States, I'm not saying 
that journalists in newsrooms across the board are getting this right or doing it perfect or like aren't messing up sometimes. But there have been a lot of really hard conversations about like race and representation in publications. And I can only imagine like the backlash within the journalism community here if like stuff like that ran in the United States. Like it would be a big deal. That's true. I yeah, I think I saw some stat and I I don't have it in front of me, but um, I think Jamila Jamil shared it, where it's like journalists in the UK are like insane, like 75% white men and 50% have like a really like upper tier education. There's just this like interesting, like there's a very narrow gaze of who is telling journalistic stories in the UK. Mm hmm. And I mean, that's still a problem here in the US. Like, I think a lot of newsrooms are trying to do better. It's still definitely not right. It's not there. It's not like newsrooms aren't representative of the American public. But Mm. it does seem like maybe the UK has perhaps a bit further to go in this. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, not to say that everyone's doing it right here. Right. (laughs) Because they're definitely not. (laughs) What have you been watching and reading and consuming? A lot. I'll share, um, I read recently Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Delia Owens. It's this novel set in, oh, now I forget, what would have marsh lands? The Gulf Coast for the most part. You're right, it is on the Gulf Coast. Um, <laughs> it's this amazing novel. So Delia Owens is actually like a a naturalist, like a scientific writer, and I I don't know if this is her first novel, but like a lot of her previous work has been like scientific in nature. Um, it's about this woman, Kaya. She is what they call swamp trash um, in the town where she lives. Like her family is deemed swamp trash because they live in a shack on the swamp. All her family abandons her, so like at seven years old, she's left alone in the swamp to fend for herself, or in the marsh, is more technically correct. And she, like, grows up to be this, like, well, I guess I don't want to spoil too much, but, um, you know, she lives off of the land and is very, like, isolated from society. And there's, like, a beautiful story along the book, uh, like, a beautiful love story that is, like, super heartbreaking. But yeah, it's an amazing book. It made me cry a lot. Um, It's really beautifully written. It has so many observations about nature, just due to the background of the author and um, just like about this connection of humans with nature and how you can kind of like understand life through that connection, like as opposed to a traditional education. But yeah, I mean, it's a great book. I loved it. I highly recommend it. It sounds really good. I'm going to add it to my list. All right. Well, um, it's so great to be back and to chat with you again. We should definitely keep going. Yeah, so thank you all for listening and hanging in there while we were gone, and we'll hope that you'll be hearing from us again soon. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is Lost Souls by Portrayal. You can find a list of all the articles and theorists we cited today in the show notes. 